primary care knowledge boost, diagnosis of diabetes. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, you're here with us. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. Today we're talking to Dr. Marlon Moraes and Nicola Milne all about diagnosing diabetes mellitus. So Marlon um, is a GP in Greater Manchester and has a special interest in diabetes and um, has done some work on the pilot for the low-calorie diets. Um, Nicola has had uh, many different uh, roles within diabetes and so is a fountain of knowledge um, all about it Um, and it was great to get them both on today. In today's episode we talk about the um, diagnosing different types of diabetes mellitus so we talk primarily about type 1 and type 2 but we also talk about MODI or MODI um, which is maturity onset diabetes of the young um, and you'll hear me trying to get my head around that <laughs> and then uh, LADA or LADA which is latent autoimmune diabetes in adults as well as talking about steroid induced diabetes and gestational diabetes and type 3C which is caused due to different reasons but all around damage to or in the pancreas and we talk about um, how to go about diagnosing the different types of diabetes in primary care. We also mention some of the red flags around diabetes and we cover how much of a problem diabetes is in the UK. Yeah, we also talk about pre-diabetes and the options for treating this as well um, and why it's important. Yep. Yeah, so we, um, we hope you have a, a good time listening and we'll be back at the end with our learning points. Um, so would you both like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, so I'm Marlon Moraes. I'm the diabetes lead for Manchester CCG and a working diabetes GP and a GP in Tameside and in Manchester. Hi, everybody. My name's Nikki Milne and I'm currently a diabetes support lead across the Brooklands and Northern Dun primary care network. Um, my background, I've been a community diabetes specialist nurse. I do some other work for the primary care Diabetes Society Committee. I'm a Diabetes UK clinical champion and uh, just really looking forward to our discussions today. Amazing. So very qualified, both of you, hopefully, to talk us through diabetes today. <laughs> um, so we thought we'd start with, I was going to say an easy question, but maybe quite a broad question, actually. Um, <laughs> what is diabetes? So obviously, diabetes mellitus is what we're referring to. And I'll start with diabetes is a disease which is based around insulin, either resistance to insulin or a lack of insulin due to either destruction of the pancreatic cells or a presumed autoimmune destruction of the cells in childhood. Now, the problem isn't just the lack of the insulin or the resistance to the insulin. It's what happens after that because you have raised blood sugars. So it's the raised blood sugars which go on. Um, There's all sorts of other inflammatory processes which go on. There's releases of cytokines and all of these fancy things which go on in um, the diabetic pathway. But essentially, you have a lack or a resistance to insulin, which then goes on to cause other problems. Yeah, and I think it's really important. It's those other problems, isn't it? In all types of diabetes, we've got this increased cardiovascular risk. 
and um, diabetes always tends to come to the party with its two best friends, which are normally high blood pressure and dyslipidemia. Um, so when we're thinking about diabetes, whatever type it is, it's um, as Marlon said, it's all those other factors that are contributing to um, to risk in people. It's the worst best friends ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't want them at your party, really. Um, but no, it's a really nice way of thinking about it. Um, and um, talk us through the types, if you will. Uh, it used to be sort of straightforward <laughs> with type one and type two. Um, and even that wasn't ever straightforward. And now it's even more complicated. Talk us through an overview of the types. Yeah, so I don't mind because as you say, you know, we've had this, you know, type one and type two. And I'm I'm very convinced that in a few years' time when I'm when I'm retired and I come back and I talk about type two diabetes, they'll be like, What are you talking about? Don't you mean type two point one or two point three? Because we always know, uh, particularly in type two diabetes, uh, no one person ever particularly presents the same. And we have slimmer people presenting where it's more to do with insulin deficiency, and then we may have larger people where it's more to do with insulin resistance. So I think that whole type two will become a whole spectrum. But certainly we have at the moment type one, which is, um, as Marlon has said before, it's that destruction, isn't it, of the pancreatic, the beta cells, autoimmune uh, response. And we've got type two, which is more to do with insulin resistance. But then we've got the ones in between that. So we've often talked about LADA, which is latent autoimmune diabetes, in adults, which some people talk about being type 1.5. And certainly now the World Health Organization have classified it as slowly evolving immune mediated diabetes of adults. And I have to keep looking to read that out. It's a new concept, but they were concerned that we were calling it latent. Um, But it's making sure that we know it's like a slowly evolving uh, type 1 diabetes. And then we've got MODI, which is monogenic diabetes. Am I right in saying that MODI means maturity onset diabetes of the young? Yes. Tell tell us a bit more about MODI. About MODI. So it affects about 3% of of the population. Uh, Okay, so 3% of people with diabetes have this type, MODI. Yeah, people that are at risk is where it's running through families and generations. And often it gets misdiagnosed as either type 1 diabetes because it happens in younger people, generally before the age of, of 25. So people often get assumed to be type 1 because of their age and get put on insulin. And actually a lot of uh, MODI will respond very well to sulfonylureas. Um, but equally, some people can be treated with metformin and then you tend to pick it up because they fail to respond to the treatment to, um, to metformin. Um, in practice, I've had a couple of these cases in practice where I've had a patient, um, mother had diabetes, father had diabetes, sister had gestational diabetes, brother had type 1 diabetes, and then she's presented at around 26 with um, diabetes. And she was of a, of a higher BMI. So the suspicion was it wasn't going to be of a type 2 diabetes, but obviously we did do all the tests for that. But when I suspected Modi in primary care. The key thing here is we can't do those tests. So I I checked with the labs. I checked with Exeter. I checked with the local endocrinologist. Local endocrinologist agreed with me that she thought it probably was Modi. But the best thing to do if if you're suspecting it is to refer to your local diabetes clinic. Um, and you may say, well, actually, if we can treat this person, if we can use the sulfonylureas, if we can use the insulin, you know, what's the um, 
particular relevance around the diagnosis, but it's really important, isn't it, Marlon, for the offspring? So, you know, if we've got that diagnosis, then we know that the children of the person with Modi are equally going to be at risk and we can bring in the early screening um, and make sure that, that those get on the right treatment at an early stage. Particularly if they're pregnant. Yeah. So, you know, you've got Modi in the family and a female member of that family becomes pregnant they're going to be offered that earliest that screening for gestational diabetes, mm. which is another type of diabetes, which we'll get onto. Okay, so it's majority onset diabetes of the young. So it's it's a somebody often normally young who comes in who has diabetes, but it's not a type one essentially. But there's it's monogenetic, like you say. So it's one gene that's responsible, and it's often all all the family history will give you that clue as well. Is that fair to say? <laughs> that's it you've done our job yeah <laughs> it's just really difficult isn't it and i guess you're thinking of it because it's massive genetic component but also because possibly it won't come in with dka is that f- or, or so i mean i mean ideally you don't want anyone with type one presenting with dka so that's True. that's, that's one of the, <laughs> the key things um but you, you you've got someone there who potentially has is younger age but they don't look like a classic type one they're not necessarily losing weight so the the case that i had she was actually gaining weight right. and but very clearly they had diabetes mm. she had thirst she had polydipsia she had um a polyuria she, so she had all of those things um but she was actually of increasing bmi rather than decreasing bmi but she was in the right age range for type one. Mm. So um, the other thing, key thing being the autoantibodies that we did for type one were negative. Yep. Okay. Yeah. However, the key point I want to stress really strongly though, if you think it is type one and the person is in the age range for type one, you're not waiting for HbA1Cs and so on. You're doing your tests very quickly and you're making sure that the person's seen very quickly this this sort of clever stuff we do afterwards. Um, but in, ultimately, if you've got a patient in front of you who's 20-something and presenting with quite florid diabetes symptoms and they have a raised blood sugar, then you want to be getting them very urgent. Um, normally, they'll take them the same day in the diabetes clinic. Yeah. Um, and then, so we got sidetracked a little bit there with Modi, but you were mentioning about another um, stage or 3C, was it? 3C diabetes, yeah. Yeah, so that's where there's more pancreatic involvement and this involves things like um, where you may have had surgery or you may have pancreatic cancer, um, you might have um, pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and you're more at high risk of that if you've um, got a history of alcohol abuse, uh, smoking, long-standing diabetes, whether that's type 1 or type 2. And often that leads to sort of malabsorption because the uh, pancreatic exocrine um, cell, you know, function is is diminished. um, And that can give you very variable uh, blood glucose levels. And again, that's often mistaken for type 2 diabetes, um, and often goes undiagnosed um, in, in terms of the malabsorption. Um, so it's a very important one to consider as well. There's a really good paper from 2015, which lays out a table of type 1, type 2, uh, type 3C. And it tells you around the ages of presentation and so on. But essentially, 3C 
as, as Nikki says, interesting enough, you've got higher increased risk of hyperglycemia with a lot of these patients. Mm. So that's why it's important to know, particularly if you've got a 3C patient who you're starting on insulin, who's going to be a bus driver or something like this. These, this is why it's quite important to have these sort of bits of information to hand in those for those reasons. Um, but there is some information on a nice CKS about um, pancreatic insufficiency. So you know what to look out for. And equally, the World Health Organization, they've published a guide in 2019 around classification of diabetes. And certainly GP Notebook as well do a very good one page document looking at different types of diabetes and and what the signs and symptoms and diagnostic criteria may be. So a big thing is just, you know, if it doesn't quite sit right with you that this isn't a typical type one or a typical type two, then it's about looking at these resources or, or, or pick up the phone or, or email and get in touch with your specialist teams like Marlon was describing with his lady with Modi. Yeah, that's really interesting to cover. Um, would you mind talking to us about how you diagnose them? Yeah, so I've got to be in my bonnet about the <laughs> diagnosis of type one diabetes. So right. I'm, I'm really glad you, you, you're you asking me about this. Um, type one diabetes is not diagnosed on a HbA1c. Mm. If you have an unwell young person in front of you with the symptoms of diabetes, so classically remember our medical school days, polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss, lethargy um, being some of the ones. And then you can get the skin changes as well. So the um, necrobiosis, lipoidica, diabeticorum, you can, but that's obviously quite late stage, but you've got the the nigrans um, rash probably before that as well. So you've got someone presenting in a young age with these symptoms, which are quite obvious diabetes. One of my big pet hates that I've seen in particularly in, in some of the trainees I've had coming through through the practices is that, well, I'm just going to arrange a blood test for them. You mm. do not do that. Mm. Okay. You get a blood glucose monitor and you take their blood glucose there and then. Yeah. And if you don't have a blood glucose monitor, you really should have one. There's, it's almost unexcused. Even if you haven't got one, go out and buy one from the chemist and put it in your surgery. But the key thing is make sure that as you check your oxygen regularly, you check the date on the strips in your blood glucose monitor mm, as well. Right. Because if it's one day out of date, it won't work. Really? They're, they're very, very specific. Yeah. And also that you, you're calibrating your meter as well on a regular basis. And again, the companies will will send you the control solutions to make sure you're doing that calibration. Um, but I, I 100% agree with you, Marlon. And um, particularly during lockdown as well, we had instances where um practices were saying well I couldn't do a glucose test on them because it was a phone review now again if you're thinking it's a young person with all those symptoms and um, that person needs to be seen and those blood tests are needs to be undertaken yeah and um, the other area where some people get wrong with the diagnosis of type one to try to do it on a urine glucose um and also then they'll rely on the urine for the ketones as well So this is another one of my pet hates as well, which I want to say quite strongly for you. Um, If a person is going into ketoacidosis, for it to actually reach your urine, that's quite a late stage. So the person could be getting quite acidotic for quite a while. So one of the best things you could probably invest in as a practice is a blood glucose ketometer. So it does both. So basically the same machine, it has a ketone strip, which you put in to test the ketones. 
and it has a glucose strip which you put in to test the glucose. Um, and like I said, watched like a hawk that you're checking the date on the ketone and the glucose strips. And they're the, they're the key things. So type one diabetes for me, the diagnosis is one of the easiest things you'll have. Um, and I've and, and I always remember this. I had a young child who's brought in by a dad saying um, she's lost lots of weight. She's just not right. She's really unwell. She says to me, I feel unwell, doctor. And I, and I knew the family and they never moaned. And she was saying she felt really unwell. And he goes, she keeps going to the toilet. And so she's she drinking a lot. She's drinking a lot. And look at her. She looks really thin, doctor. And this has been going on for a few days now. So went off, did the blood glucose, and it was um, 16. Now, if she'd not eaten and it was fasting and it's above seven, that's diabetes. But most of the time, you're looking for a random. So it's a random blood glucose over 11. And that's what it was. Really easy called the peds there was no argument there was no have you done this have you done that okay we'll see you straight away and then within the next day they were back in the surgery because he actually had an appointment for something else and she'd already started on insulin the day before by the peds team there was no ketoacidosis and great and the family actually thought i was marvelous that and saved their daughter <laughs> their daughter's life for the, that i'd done this amazing thing so if you do do that believe me they will be really grateful for you um, and it's, it was literally as simple as that. In the days when we had these 10-minute appointments, bang, 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 that appointment probably took about seven minutes. I love the because you've got trainees, you can hear it from that perspective where the people are trying to get through patients and they've got, you know, they're busy, they're busy, quick, 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 uh, do the blood forms, off you go. So I, you can hear it just like, no, stop, think, act on it. Yeah. I love that message. It's uh, just kind of wake you up a bit, isn't it? <laughs> And going back to what Marlon was saying as well about urine testing for ketones, how many times do we see those pots of uh, urine strips on a windowsill in the sunshine or the, the lid's not being put back on properly and things like that? So there's so much problems with interpretation, mm -hmm. isn't there? So uh, very important to try and get those, uh, those blood levels done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What about diagnosing type 2 diabetes? So it's a bit more straightforward. Apart from, I'm going to put another caveat. If you've got a child who you think's got type two, let the hospital worry about whether it's type two or type one. You do the same process. Yeah. So if you've got a child who's extremely overweight, strong family history of, of diabetes and so on, and you've got a hunch it's a type two, that's not for you to worry about. You do the blood finger prick and you send them into the hospital. So in a young person or a child, you treat it the same way as type one. If you've got someone who's a bit more obvious, the classic patient would be 50, BMI, um, 30 or above, and maybe one or two members of the family, um, South Asian, like myself, Afro-Caribbean, um, or, or bizarrely enough, Polynesian has an extremely high um, incidence rate in some of the Polynesian islands. It's, if I'm not wrong, Nick, it's over 50% in some of the Polynesian mm -hmm. islands, bizarrely enough. There's a little quirk of the incidence of these, but the, um, the general um, rules is Afro-Caribbeans, South Asians, and you're thinking it's a type 2. By all means, you can order um, a HbA1c. Now, there are a few things to bear in mind about HbA1c. So if someone is pregnant, don't do one. So HbA1c is dependent on a normal life cycle of a red blood cell. So anything where there is an adjustment to the life cycle of the red blood cell, 
do not do a HbA1c for that person. So I'll go back to talking about trainees again. I've had a trainee who tried to do a HbA1c on someone with sickle cell disease. It didn't work. Okay, so it, it wasn't, it was a whole hoo-ha and we had to end up doing an, um, another test altogether. So um, HbA1c, as long as there's no contraindications to a HbA1c, and it needs to be 48 or above. If they have symptoms, then you just need one sample. If they don't have symptoms, so say you were just doing your annual health checks and you've found a HbA1c of 49, then in four weeks' time, you repeat the HbA1c again. But I'm going to come back to another one of my pet hates. Some people tick everything on a blood form. So they tick glucose, they tick HbA1c, they tick everything, and then they send it off. What's really not helpful is if someone's doing a glucose and you don't know whether it's fasting or non-fasting, and then they're doing a HbA1c, you don't really know how to analyze that. So my key thing is try and stick to just one. So just tick one of them. If you know there's a reason why you can't do HbA1c, then just do a fasting glucose. Mm-hmm. Fasting glucose over seven, random glucose over 11. So um, so if you can't do HbA1c, that's another option. But as long as you can do the HbA1c, this is a current gold standard. And again, there's some really clear, nice guidance out there about when you shouldn't use a HbA1c, um, but I've mentioned a couple of those. The old gold standard for diabetes diagnosis was the two-hour oral glucose tolerance test. And Nikki's probably done loads of these, so I'll let her tell you about them. Yeah, so really now the oral glucose tolerance test is really for picking up gestational diabetes now. They take your blood glucose levels whilst you were fasted. They give you an oral glucose load, which was like um, a pink blancmange that you had to drink. And then you had to sit still for two hours. And they used to look at your fasting glucose levels and then your uh, postprandial or your post-glucose load levels. But as I say, that's mainly done now to pick up gestational diabetes, and that would be picked uh, done by your antenatal teams. Um, Occasionally, uh, where Marlon's talked about where we can't use a HbA1c, it might be done, but generally you'd probably be using a fasting glucose. Um, But if you were, certainly if you look at the American Diabetes Association or the World Health um, Organization diagnosis criteria, they would say that if that fasting glucose level was impaired, then you may look at a glucose tolerance test. Um, But generally in this country, we would use the fasting. um, And if it was impaired, then we would determine that as being what we call non-diabetic hyperglycemia or pre-diabetes. And then we'd be referring into the, the National Diabetes Prevention Plan. But I just wanted to go back to one thing that Marlon had mentioned about the HbA1c for diagnosis in type 2. And he spoke about the guidelines which say that, you know, if you've got, say, somebody with a HbA1c of 49, they're probably not going to have symptoms and you would repeat that in a month. And a lot of people question that because normally we do HbA1cs every three months, don't we? Certainly when we're we're looking for the effectiveness of treatments or how uh, diabetes is progressing. Uh, But this is the one instance where you would, on the first one, give some lifestyle advice and then it would be within that that four-week time frame um, to repeat it. And it would be on two readings, 48 or above. Yeah, just clock that four-week thing. So, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit of a nuance. Um, 
so it's interesting if you do the second one and it isn't raised mm. but it's in the impaired range then you would treat them as non-diabetic hyperglycemia and, and enroll them into the treatment plan for that and that includes an annual hba1c anyway but and you would make sure that you're constantly monitoring that person's hba1c at least annually yeah. if you do do and they're both raised then you can make your diagnosis at that point and um if it's barn door i code them at that point if you're not sure you can put a code there remember you can always change your code so if you if you find out later on that they're actually a type one that's been misdiagnosed you can always change your code but you get your code on and therefore all your reminders are automatically set for the things that you need to start doing for that patient yeah brilliant and then red flags for diabetes. Um, can you talk us through that when you when we should worry about a patient who presents with symptoms of diabetes or a new onset diabetes or other people? So it's probably two of the biggest red flags. Uh, one we've already discussed, which is type one. You know, so that that's your biggest one that you're going to worry about with the DKA risk. And the other one is obviously the pancreatic cancer, which I think we touched on before, where we were talking about the type three C diabetes. So if you have a very sudden onset in an older person that's maybe losing weight, has got fatigue. Um, and the blood glucose levels are particularly high, then you would want to maybe look at the pathway there as to uh, as a referral um, on a two-week wait. Um, so those would be the, the two most significant red flags for me. Um, what about yourself, Marlon? Um, so moving along those lines is if you've got someone who's known established diabetes, who's, again, a similar age bracket, so 50 and above, and they suddenly have a sudden deterioration in their diabetes. So you've got the new onset, but for me also someone who has a sudden deterioration in their existing diabetes, sudden weight loss, that's someone who I'd also be suspicious of um, a pancreatic pathway for those patients. I've had a couple and they accept them on the two-week wait pathway because there's no quibbles about it at all. Because if the person didn't have diabetes, they would accept them. So the fact that they have diabetes doesn't exclude them. As long as you've excluded other things like, for example, so you get the patient and you actually have a chat with them. And sometimes it might be, I've had a bereavement or something and I've just stopped taking all my medication. So that would explain that. So in which case that wouldn't warrant that sort of um, action. Or they may just say, I've just suddenly started a a new diet where I only eat watermelon or something like that you know of a fad diet which is high in in whatever you'd like to hope that they didn't do that but strange things has happened so um so so you can get things like that and often um as a bit of a quirk so people that end up having their diabetes review in like february's um Mm. and um previously they weren't having them in february's and they've they've allowed themselves to be a little bit (laughs) Indulgent. Yeah, indulgent. Indulgent, at, at Christmas. indulgent at Christmas. Um, yeah. And if that's the case, then that's fine. But if it's someone that has literally no reason at all mm-hmm. and the diabetes has just gone, um, for want of a better word, off the scale, it's gone really high, they've lost loads of weight, that's a red flag. And the other red flags is people with high risk feet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so this, so this, is, this is the thing. But as GPs, interestingly now, we don't see many of these because the foot checks are often done by our nurses and our HCA teams who have been trained really well on in dealing with these. Um, but if you're having people with um, 
So they, they have this loss of sensation in their feet. They're having breaking down in ulcerations and so on in their feet. Then actually, there are clinics in every locality called high-risk foot clinics, and they will see these people as a matter of urgency to avoid any further issues. So that's something to um, bear in mind. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about the shark at foot as well, you know, the hot red foot. Um, and typically, I don't know about you, Marlon, but it always tends to happen to me on a, a Friday evening of a bank holiday weekend. And I'm like, oh, can't get them to the high risk foot clinic. So actually, if you have somebody that's presenting with an infection or an ulcer or that hot red foot, then they need to be going down to, um, to A&E and you need to be speaking to your podiatry teams there because they are very high risk. And with high risk for amputation, is it? So, yeah, we just call it, I mean, there's levels of risk. So all the foot, you know, you'll have a foot pathway in your local area, the nice guidance on, on the foot pathways. So there's certain criteria um, that give you that high risk for amputation. I mean, we're doing um, in the in um, England and Wales alone now, we're doing 190 amputations a week um because of the complications of diabetes and uh, most of these about 70 percent are actually preventable um but often we don't you know if you do see that foot on a friday evening you might be tempted just to give some antibiotics and say we'll see you next week and that's sometimes where we then get the delays and that's where the progression can often take place and in terms of um diabetes generally actually in the uk how much of a problem is it in terms of the instance the morbidity and mortality so I'm just going to chuck some money figures out. <laughs> um, the largest expenditure per any disease area in the UK, possibly worldwide, isn't it? In the developed world, actually, in the developed world, full stop. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one in 14 people in the UK at the moment have diabetes and that prevalence is rising. So despite the fact that we know how we can look to prevent type 2 diabetes, we've got remission programmes now as well, um, that prevalence is still going up. And we suspect anecdotally post-COVID, uh, because we are seeing some evidence coming through that COVID affect the beta cells in certain people, that you know some people were treated with steroids, weren't they? That was another type of diabetes, steroid-induced. And we know that at the moment we've got 13.6 million people that are at risk of developing diabetes. So diabetes is always that tip of the iceberg. So we can see, you know, those that we have diagnosed at the top, but there's all those that are at risk. Um, and I was part of a group that did a paper uh, which looked at um, how many new cases of diabetes we would normally have diagnosed in that first lockdown period for COVID. And as Marlon was saying before, with type 2 diabetes, people often will not have symptoms. It's actually only, out, I think it's about six in 10 people will present without any symptoms of diabetes with type 2. So there's a, a, so many people out there that have got type 2 diabetes but don't know about it. And another interesting point about diabetes that I always like to make, obviously one of my other passions is um, information around HIV. So um, you've heard me speaking about that before. When you're giving someone a diagnosis for HIV, you're not actually giving them a diagnosis which affects their life expectancy. However, when you're giving someone a diagnosis for diabetes, you are giving them a diagnosis which can potentially shorten their life expectancy by a considerable amount, particularly if we're, if we're not able to control that very well. Um, and that's a key message I want to get across there, you know, so 
diagnosed early, treated well, it's it's less of a problem, but there is still an increased mortality rate in patients with diabetes over and above what were some other in the past illnesses, which are now extremely well controlled. So um, it is an important thing to, to bear in mind. And interesting, Diabetes UK did a survey, which which admittedly was was aimed at the general public, but they asked people um, what they thought would be a, a consequence of diabetes. And only 1% of respondents knew that diabetes could shorten your life expectancy. Um, and I've just got some of the figures here. So we talked about that 190 amputations, which is more than one amputation every hour of every day. But 770 new strokes every week, 590 heart attacks, 230 cases of heart failure. And again, in that in that study, only 3% of the general population knew that diabetes could affect your heart. And it's the biggest side effects. 50% of people with diabetes will, will have a cardiovascular event. So there's something that we're doing wrong, isn't there, Marlon, that we're not getting this message across that diabetes is serious and that it is linked to these um, these complications. The public, 25% of the public knew that diabetes might cause um, problems with your eyesight and your feet. Um, you know, quite often, particularly with type 2 diabetes, and this is one of my pet hates, people come in and they go, I've got a touch of diabetes. I've got the one that's not serious. And, you know, Diabetes UK at the moment are running this campaign about, you know, the fact that diabetes is yeah, serious. It's really eye-opening, actually, the fact of what the general public are thinking. Um, I didn't think it would be that bad. Yeah. And even when they surveyed people with diabetes, so if you look at the National Diabetes Audit, um, I think, you know, when we're not in a COVID situation, something like 70% of people with diabetes get a foot check done, which is great. But then when they asked people with diabetes, it was something like less than 50% knew that diabetes could cause a foot problem. So when we're doing that foot examination, why do the people think we're doing it? <laughs> and what information are we telling people? You know, it's like, you know, we should be saying, I'm looking at your feet because, and this is what could happen because of your diabetes. And if something does happen, this is who you should inform. And this is how, how quickly we should do it. It could be that, that we are saying it, but it's difficult to retain in a very busy annual review check when you're trying to, to look at so many different things. But we certainly need to, to look at doing a slightly better job around the, um, the education. I suppose one of the issues there, though, could be reaching that balance between scaring someone witless. Mm. So they then run away from the surgery and don't come for any checks at all because you think they've just given them a death yeah. sentence. But giving them enough so they get properly engaged with you to prevent all of these things from, from happening. And over the years of practicing, we'll have, we'll have all met the patients where you've told them just that one thing and that's it. It scared them off. They're gone forever. You're, you're not going to get yeah. them back. But conversely, you tell the patient that one thing, and that is the one thing which brings them back to you again and again. You know, I didn't know that diabetes could give me erectile dysfunction. I better get that sorted now. Mm. And I think I have a colleague who is a, a diabetes specialist psychologist, and she's actually somebody living with type 1 diabetes. And she always says at diagnosis, one of the best ways to frame it is to sort of say, now you have diabetes and it is serious, this thing, you know, and explain what could, you know, some of the things that could happen. But the good news is, is that if we work together, we can minimise this and we can look at, um, you know, these complications not arising. So it's about working together 
together as a team. And I always think that that's, that's quite a helpful way around it as well. So, uh, but very, very important, the language we use. And there's a great document from NHS England, which is Language Matters in Diabetes. Um, and I would strongly urge our listeners to have a look at that and to be sensitive around the language we're using in, uh, in our consultations. That's a perfect resource and really good points. In mm-hmm. fact, um, would you mind actually if we asked you a bit about your spiel for giving the news of, of diabetes? Because it's a, it's a common thing they give in OSCEs, but actually um, in, in real life, it is quite a difficult balance. Um, would one of you sort of talk, talk us through how you'd give the news of type 2 diabetes? Okay, so I'll, I'll go from the from my GP perspective and then Nikki will probably go from a, probably the much better nurse's perspective. Um so someone comes to me, we've done the investigations and bear in mind, sometimes the patient might come to you and they don't know why they're feeling what they're feeling. So if it's one of the patients who's lucky enough to have symptoms, so they're actually coming to you because they've got symptoms. These are the patients that I find engage more because they don't want to feel like that again. So I go, so I bring them in and I say to them, I have some, some good news for you in that we know what's causing the symptoms. Then I find that I get some biting. So they're, they're often at that point where they're like, oh, great, they know what's going <laughs> Not expecting good news. But it, though, but it is because we know <laughs> because they've, they've been having all of these things and not knowing what's been going on for the past goodness knows however many weeks. And, yeah. and, and you're actually telling them, we found out what the problem is and we can treat it here in the surgery and you don't have to go to the hospital. You would not believe how many people look relieved at that point. Mm. So that is actually a, a, a key thing as well. And I think... So to go back on this again, but that's possibly why some people don't think it's as much of a problem because it's dealt with so well in primary care in so many cases. They don't think it's a serious problem because like, oh, well, the practice nurse is dealing with this or, or so on. Yeah. But anyway, coming back to it. So we've, I've got the good news in that we know what this is. Or if it's someone who is completely out of the blue, like well, we've, done, we've done your blood tests and we found that the blood sugar is raised. Um, which could suggest that you have diabetes. So we need to repeat this in four weeks time. So if it's the first one, and then if it's the second one, we've confirmed this on the, on the second blood test, uh, we have got diabetes. So we do um, need to look at entry into our program where we would start to control that for you. I find that's relatively straightforward. Um, I'm trying to make as many things as matter of fact as possible. So don't flower it up. So that's the sort of avenue that I like to come from. Now, that appointment when I'm telling someone they've got diabetes, it is quite a lot to do in 10 minutes. So I often don't. So I'll often either, if I know that I'm going to have to give someone the diagnosis, I'll give them a longer appointment so I can explain it in more details. I can tell them what diabetes is. Check with them what their understanding is. Do you know what, do you, do you know what diabetes means? You'd be surprised how many people give you a really good answer because there's someone in the family that has it. And occasionally they may give you the answer because there's someone in the family that has it who has controlled it diabolically throughout the entire time that they had the diabetes. That can sometimes work in your, your favour because then they will literally engage again. I don't want to be like that. So you tell me what I need to do so I don't end up like Aunt Bessie who ended up losing her toes because of diabetes. Yeah. 
and Nikki? Yeah, so I'll just come in with a, a little tip, um, top tip about probably it's maybe not quite at diagnosis, but around HbA1c, because certainly um, in the work that I've done, so most of my work is working across GP uh, patches and areas, seeing the slightly more complex people with diabetes. And um, people will come in and the HbA1c might as well be the lottery numbers for Saturday because nobody's got a clue about what a HbA1c is. One of the things that I find really helpful is about that explanation of HbA1c. And it can be a real light bulb moment for people with diabetes. So the way that I often will describe it, I use the Diabetes UK information prescriptions, which are embedded on your IT systems or you can print out as hard copies. And on those, you'll have, you know, I'll talk about the red blood cells and I'll draw like a cir- two circles. So these are your red blood cells. Their job is to carry your sugar and oxygen around your body. And then I draw some, you know, four little smaller dots. These are the sugar that your red blood cells carry. In. And I'll say that when you've got diabetes, you've got more sugar that this, this um, red cells carry. In. And I'll draw more dots on that particular um, circle. And I'll liken it to um, a Tesco's delivery truck where you've over, you know, you've over ordered that week. And it's a, it's a bit bigger than it should be. It's bulging with the shopping. And then we talk about when these bigger trucks start coming to smaller, smaller tunnels in your bodies. And those small tunnels around your heart and your kidneys and in the man in your penis, your feet, your back of your eyes. And I talk about how diabetes does have these two best friends, blood pressure and high cholesterol. So we talk about how the tunnels can sometimes be even smaller because the cholesterol's high. So we talk about big trucks coming to small tunnels. Um, and if you were going to be um, living um, in the village behind that tunnel or that's coming in um, and you're waiting for your food supply, it's not going to come. So we talk about how some of your smaller blood vessels around your major organs can, can be affected and that once they are that can't sort of come back to life and people just sort of come move to the edge of the seat and they go so nurse tell me what is what's my number what's my you know and you say well we're probably aiming and you'll look at the individualized target you know might be a HbA1c less than 75 with frailty or you know you might be looking at less than 57 or 48 if they're particularly young on the diabetes journey and then you'll say and your results 112 or something and straight away they've got it and they realize why they've had a problem with the heart or why they've got loss of feeling in the feet Um, and that is a real um, moment where, where you will often get real great engagement with that and it's important when you've got to that stage and then say you know so the good news is is you're here today and we can look at what we can do and and then they can also understand why it's important to treat the blood pressure and the cholesterol you know we've talked a lot about glycemia today but really if we were looking at what we need to prioritize in diabetes it would be blood pressure first then cholesterol because we're trying to prevent that cardiovascular risk and then the the HbA1c so I often find that that's a really useful thing um, and there's some areas now in the country um, down in Portsmouth to try and give that gravitas on the diagnosis they're doing a two-week wait now for structured education we've not talked spoke much about education today 
Um, but a big part of, you know, we need to be really empowering people to self-manage their diabetes. Um, and I know Marlon will be able to talk a lot about remission programs and lifestyle. And that's so much an important thing in type 2 diabetes. And yet we, we refer a lot of people to structured education, but nobody goes. Um, it's very low. It's, it's, it's less than 10 percent of attendance if you look at the National Diabetes mm. Audit data. So again, if we could get that two-week wait, so at diagnosis, that education, it's part of the treatment pathway. It's not a frilly add-on that, that's an option to choose. Um, and I think at diagnosis is a good time with, uh, with capturing people as well. Um, yeah, and we'll do a whole, a whole other podcast episode on, um, on how to treat this. I think the other thing to maybe just cover briefly before we finish, because I am quite conscious of time, is about pre-diabetes, because we've not spoken a lot about that. So it's just to, to get touch on it briefly and what, what we need to know in primary care about pre-diabetes. So we do need to know about pre-diabetes in primary care, because this is entirely dealt with in primary care. So this is not dealt with in secondary care. Secondary care we're dealing with when it's too late and it's gone on too far. So pre-diabetes, as we now call it, or non-diabetic hyperglycemia or impaired glucose tolerance, uh, impaired fasting glucose. So these are all the names. It's like Prince. It's had all these different names throughout of its um, <laughs> throughout its career. But it's essentially they're all referring to the same thing. So when we're looking at diabetes, they basically decided that the level at which someone would be diagnosed with diabetes was a HbA1c of 48. And that was what the, the diagnosis was at that point. However, for a period of time, people have known that people who have a raised glucose that's not quite 48, but not 38, for example, some of those people are still at risk of having increased cardiovascular risk factors, they're at increased risk of developing diabetes, and they are at increased risk of, of morbidity and mortality as well. So when they've looked at the, what the, the figures for the people that's, that seems to capture the most people that are at risk um, from this raised blood glucose, it appears to be the people whose blood glucose in HbA1c terms is between 42 and 47 inclusive. Anyone who's got 48 has diabetes. Anyone who's got HbA1c of, of, of 40, 41, um, they're classed to be normoglycemic. But 42 to 47 inclusive is this thing known as non-diabetic hyperglycemia, of which it forms one of our um, quaff realms as well. So, you know, it, it, it is there. It's recognised now. And why is it recognised? It's thought to be over 10% of these people will go on to develop type 2 diabetes within three to four years. So we now know there's around 13.5 million people with an NDH, so non-diabetic hyperglycemia, of which you now know that around 10% of those, if you do nothing, will go on to develop type 2 diabetes within the next few years. So you're talking about an extra 1.2, 1.3 million people with diabetes, which are having to be, having to be cared for by the NHS. And we're already talking about something which takes over, I can't remember the figures, but it's over 10% of the NHS total budget is on diabetes. So that's why we need to know about a non-diabetic hyperglycemia in primary care, because it is a, such a big risk factor for going on to develop diabetes. And what we know is you're not just stuck with it. 
you can reverse this risk factor. So there was a, there's been a number of studies done over a number of years. So there was a Finnish study, there was a Chinese study, then, then there was an international study, including British centres, where they've looked at these people who have had this risk factor for diabetes, and they had looked to see what can we do. And the key point was always lifestyle advice, diet and exercise being key things. In all of the studies, the Finnish studies, the Darkwing Chinese studies, and the diabetes prevention study, um, that if someone did 30 minutes of intensive activity, so they were short of breath, and you could put that into your normal regime. So you could walk your dog, you could go for a run, you could play netball if you played netball, you could do rugby if you wanted to do rugby, you know, whatever, whatever your thing. If you do this five times, 30 minutes in the week, along with dietary um, reduction in carbohydrate loads, then those people were able to reverse their HbA1c from the at-risk range to a normal glycemic range. And those um, studies were then formed into the National Diabetes Prevention Programme as a national programme. So when someone is found to have non-diabetic hyperglycemia, they can enter the programme and reverse their risk back down to normal levels. Many end up having um, quite a few kilograms of weight loss. Um, many end up then reversing this risk. But then the key thing is, even if the person has reversed that risk, you still do an annual HbA1c on them to make sure that we're keeping uh, control on that. So I get very excited about this because it was it's, it's something that I just found really interesting. I know. <laughs> with the diabetes prevention plan as well another big area that's there's a lot of uh, very um, strong emerging research is around sleep our sleeping patterns as well so that's now been incorporated into the diabetes prevention plan so where we struggle to um to stay asleep or where we have shorter duration of sleep that massively increases our risk factors for um type 2 diabetes development Previously, you could be referred to the diabetes prevention plan if you had a HbA1c between 42 and 47. But um, NHS England and Diabetes UK worked together so that you could go onto the Diabetes UK website and they've got a know your risk screening tool on there and you can put your details in. And if you it's like a traffic light system. And if you um, come out as amber or red, you can self refer based on the findings from that traffic light system so you don't necessarily have to have a HbA1c and be referred by your GP and the other cohort that they've now opened the diabetes prevention plan up to is women uh, with a history of gestational diabetes um, and that's very important because they are at increased risk of developing diabetes in later life and interestingly all women with gestational diabetes should also have a HbA1c annually um, and that is something that's um, often overlooked and a, a recent paper that was just published last month showed that maybe only 27% of women are getting those annual HbA1c checks after a gestational diabetes pregnancy um, so that's a, an area that I'm quite passionate about as well that's a really good point to highlight yeah so um in terms of our take-home points for today it's been fabulous talking to you about all about the um diagnosis of diabetes and we'll be joining you'll be joining us again thank you um to be talking <laughs> about management um but um in terms of the points for today um today's listeners what would you like them to take home i'll jump in with my key one if you have anyone who you have 
any suspicion of having type 1 diabetes, finger prick blood test that individual there and then in your surgery, no matter how young they are. I have had someone say before now, I didn't want to do a finger prick on, on this baby. The family would be more upset if you missed the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes in that baby. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up being admitted to emergency children's unit. So finger prick blood test for anyone who you feel is at risk of type 1 diabetes. So that is my key take home message. Second take home message. If you think they're at risk of DKA, so you you feel they're coming, they're really thirsty, they're vomiting, they're getting dehydrated, diarrhea, vomiting, raised blood sugars, or normal blood sugars in some individuals with type 2 diabetes. This is the whole thing we haven't touched, but there's something called flat bush diabetes, um, where someone who's a type 2 diabetic can develop DKA. But traditionally, it's not the most common thing. But you, if someone is, you feel they've got DKA, get a blood ketone meter and make sure that you check the dates of all your strips. And also I should probably add as another take home message, stick to one modality of testing. So if you can't do a HbA1c and there's well-documented reasons why you can't do a HbA1c, do a fasting glucose, but don't mix and match. Um, and if you pay, if the patient is type two picture and they have no symptoms, make sure you do a second test after four weeks after giving some lifestyle advice. You are giving them a diagnosis which is going to increase their health insurance. You're giving them a diagnosis which is potentially going to reduce their life expectancy. So you're not going to do that on one blood test. You're going to repeat it and you've got to make sure that that's a definite diagnosis. Nikki? something just isn't quite sitting right and you're just not sure then it's so easy to speak to your specialist teams and your specialist teams would so much rather you contact them early than end up with a patient who who gets admitted or somebody gets set off on the wrong journey and um, so do reach out and do speak to your colleagues definitely and when you are diagnosing it's about making sure that we are getting over the seriousness of diabetes, but giving that positive encouragement that there's so much now that we can do um, to mitigate those complications. Wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you. Yes, so um, it was lovely to um, hear the passion of Marlon and Nikki um, during that all about diabetes. Um, and there was so much to take away. It was it was a lot of information, but a lot of really good information. Um, what did you learn, Sarah? Yeah, um, it really, really was quite a lot of information. And I loved that there was a lot of resources in that that they linked to. And I think they'll be really interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of compiling the list of resources for the episode and then kind of bookmarking certain bits. Um, so I loved how... <laughs> passionate Marlon was about diagnosing type 1 diabetes and not to wait for HbA1c's often they're not appropriate for younger patients anyway um so that whole thing about no go and get <laughs> go and get a a glucometer and measure them and off the importance of that not to, not to miss somebody at that important stage that window of opportunity before they come very become very unwell potentially very good point um i liked uh when nikki said about um the the two best friends coming to the party <laughs> blood pressure and cholesterol um yeah. i just thought that was a really nice way of thinking about it and also just um kind of alongside that the the scale of the problem was quite interesting to hear um the fact that one in 14 people have it and that's increasing and then we've got all of the risk associated with covid and potentially another 
wave of people coming through um, that might not have been at risk before necessarily and how a lot of them are asymptomatic so we might not even know about them so the burden is actually quite humongous really. Yeah and it's that message isn't it of, of how do you get the massive importance of the message of what diabetes is through without scaring people off um, or even just what is diabetes and understanding because that you know when you learn it the sort of spiel for med school going through each of the different complications all of it can take such a long time yeah but I think Nikki's description of the trucks was just brilliant that was great. I think that is it's so straightforward yeah it just feels like it will really hit home if you if you do it well <laughs> then it should really really hit home and then dra- drawing out a, a glycosylated red blood cell and explaining what HbA1c is so it's a meaningful number and coverage of what an HbA1c is actually um, was quite useful in the episode and about how the yeah. red blood cell cycle is really important and choosing which patients you do that on. That was a really good reminder. Good to go through a moddy as well, wasn't it? Oh yeah, moddy, yeah. All of the like uh, extra bits um, of diabetes mm. that you never really quite got a handle on. <laughs> I like the message though. It was focus on the diabetes. Don't worry too much about, you know, if it's not straightforward. It's If it's not typical, then... The, the diabetes team can deal with it and you can talk to them about it yeah exactly you can get advice yeah i've just got like i've got bullet points of my other top tips that i'll just read out yeah because they're good the um it was um you always think about the red flags with a sudden onset diabetes but i thought it was nice the sudden deterioration in diabetes mm. was a nice reminder um that it's a diagnosis that can shorten life expectancy yeah which doesn't always quite get through um it feels like something that you just kind of say but Really thinking about what that means is quite important. The fact that sleep was a risk factor, which I did not know. And um, about gestational diabetes and the HbA1c yearly. Yeah, that's a a good audit or a good QI (laughs) project. Yeah, because how often it's uh, coded. And actually that coding point about non-diabetic hypoglycemia, what what I'd normally sort of consider as pre-diabetes, and that being something that can flag up doing annual HbA1Cs um, was really useful to know as well. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we'll be back with um, Marlon and Nikki again to do another episode all about the management of diabetes. So hopefully that'll be really good with them too. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. We'll put all of the links in the episode description. Um, And we really appreciate anyone who's gotten in touch already. Um, And keep doing so, please. Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.